Brain Injury Today is sponsored by the Washington State Traumatic Brain Injury Council and produced by Goal 17 Foundation. I think people always go to um, uh, go to the easiest and maybe most obvious solution when they want to you know, prevent injuries, and that is let's get out there and raise awareness. Well, I, I think there's definitely a place for that. That is probably the least effective injury prevention that we can do because it is really hard to change people's behavior. Welcome to another episode of Brain Injury Today, your connection to the brain injury community. I'm Deborah Crawley, Executive Director for the Brain Injury Alliance of Washington. And today we're going to be talking about preventing traumatic brain injuries in children with Dr. Brian Johnston, Chief of Pediatrics at Harborview Medical Center here in Seattle, Washington. Welcome, Brian, and thank you for joining us. Thanks very much. I'm uh, happy to be here, Deborah, and excited to talk to you about ways to prevent brain injury in young kids. In our young kids. And this is a great episode. You know, you and I have known each other actually a pretty long time at this point, even pre my work at the Brain Injury Alliance. And um, I still remember a first conversation that came up out of the blue. We had a mutual friend from the CDC Injury Prevention Center. and, And then I came here and worked together on a, a number of projects. And really, as we developed here at BIAWA, our pediatric brain injury program, which was the first in the state to really support beyond the clinical. And I'm always thankful for your, your work in that. And we're fortunate to have folks like you, literally pretty much just across the street. So I, I turn it to you to kind of what's what's the overview as as you are doing your work. I mean, you you're a leader, Brian. You've been doing this work and passionate about prevention in particular for our young people in the world, both the clinical and prevention. Yeah, thanks, Deborah. I, you know, I think we have, as you point out, the benefit of working at Harborview, which is the level one pediatric and adult trauma center for the state of Washington. So. The hospital really pulls in uh, cases from around the region that need the expertise and services of a world-class trauma center. Mm-hmm. It gives us a good view of, of who's getting injured and how they're being injured. Right. And over the years, over the years, we've been able to tease out some patterns. Um, it's always surprising to me that we can expect every summer, for example, to see 40 or 50 kids that have fallen out of windows. It is uh. like clockwork. And um you know, you, you don't unfortunately know who those 40 or 50 kids are going to be, but it, it's a predictable number every year. And so, you know, we are able, I think, with some, uh, with some confidence to point to the major threats to young kids when it comes to unintentional injuries that lead to brain, brain injury. So um, uh, we can talk about any number of those here. I, I would say that uh, the field of injury prevention, which is one of the things that Harborview invests in as a mm-hmm. level one pediatric trauma center, mm-hmm. is uh, it's, 
It is, as you know, multifaceted. Um, it can take anything from policy advocacy, like the Zachary Leistead law, to really change behavior at a community level, mm-hmm. um, all the way down to individual uh, interventions with the kids and parents in the context of a clinic visit for their well-child care. To um, to further downstream, we you know we work with our colleagues in surgery and neurosurgery testing and uh, studying and documenting the best way to care for kids who've been injured. Right. And, then, um, and more recently, we've put quite a bit of resource into understanding what optimal rehabilitation looks like. So at every level, you know, preventing the injury, taking care of an injured person, and then rehabilitating them to get them back into, into society, into normal life as best we can. That It's a spectrum that we would call injury control, which is a little broader than injury prevention. But I'm you know, I'm most interested in the upstream interventions of injury prevention, really trying to stop kids from being injured in the first place. So at, at Harborview, and as you've been doing the work, and it's what you said before, is it's a little concerning. It's the number of kids coming in with the traumatic brain injuries. Is it consistent? Is, it, is, is there any impact being made on public awareness and knowledge and I in the falls prevention I mean I know there are a number of campaigns uh every summer that yeah. go out and kind of what's sticking well I mean this is this is the challenge in any sort of right. prevention work I guess is you don't you can't count the cases that don't happen you don't know which kid didn't fall out of a window because their parents heard a well-timed message in one of our right. public uh, public safety announcements. So it's it's challenging to take credit for anything. I would say that um, if you step back and look at, at US data over the last decade or 15 years, there's probably a 30% reduction in the incidence of both fatal and non-fatal unintentional injuries in kids. So across the board, uh, the world is a safer place for children than it was uh, when our kids were very young, yeah. and, uh, much safer than it was when you and I somehow survived childhood. <laughs> um, but, but you know, to to put a a specific um, uh, finger on on what it is that we've done, it's it's more challenging. I think people always go to um, uh, go to the easiest and maybe most obvious solution when they want to you know prevent injuries, and that is let's get out there and raise awareness. Let's educate people, let's educate coaches, let's educate um, uh, teachers, let's educate the community about this particular injury and what they could do to make it, uh, to, to make it less common. And I, while I, I think there's definitely a place for that, that is probably the least effective injury prevention that we can do because it is really hard to change people's behavior. Yeah, it's changing behaviors is the outcome and it's hard to measure if it does happen. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you know, we all know, like, I, I know what I should eat and I know how much I should exercise as a physician. And that hasn't changed my behavior. That knowledge doesn't always, there's plenty of reasons, uh, plenty of reasons to get between what we know and what we do. And so while I don't think it's, it's, it's something that we shouldn't uh, continue to attempt, um, I think a lot of the success in the world of injury prevention um, actually focuses on the environment that people live in and the products that they use, making streets and roads safer for, for bicyclists and pedestrians, making cars safer for occupants in a way that protects people, whether they choose to participate or not. Um, 
So the car that you're riding in today, assuming you bought your car in the last 10 years, is much safer than the car that you rode in 30 years ago. And you don't have to choose that. Cars are just safer. Right. Um, and there's more occupant protection built into it. So um, that's always where we look in injury prevention is, is, uh -huh. is there a way to modify products in the environment that will make uh, make them safer for everybody and not rely on everybody making a good choice every time uh, to do the right thing to protect themselves or their kids. And I think that's where a lot of the success has come over the last. Uh, so environmental and because you mm -hmm. say products, but you're also speaking to things that change in, in our daily environment that, like you said, whether we chose to or not, the sidewalks, there are more sidewalks, you know, here in Seattle in particular, the bike lanes are nice. They're separate in many of the areas. So, so it's really what you see is those environmental pieces that, that have made the largest impact. That's an interesting thought. Yeah. It's, they're often the most expensive interventions, yeah. but they're also, they're also those that have the most lasting impact. You know, you build a good street and, and it protects kids or pedestrians or motor vehicle occupants for the next, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, Whereas if you rely on paying a policeman overtime to go and enforce pedestrian laws, there's a limit to how much uh, you can do for that. And uh, probably even less in your, if you're right. able to go out and educate every eight-year-old how to safely cross the street. Um, so yeah, I, th I do think those are some of the most impactful. And we can talk about specific examples if you want to go through some. I'd love a specific example. <laughs> I like specifics. Well, I mean, so to your to your initial question is what for young kids, kids maybe yeah. under four, what's what causes head injuries? What unintentional injuries do we see that cause injury and what can we do to prevent it? It is um, it is a sobering uh, set of statistics. We we often, I think, focus on well, what is it that kills people? And unfortunately, it's true that children do do die from injury, and injury is one of the more common causes for for death yeah, in for the pediatric year. world. Um, but it's just a it's a the tip of the iceberg, you know. For every kid that is injured, there's anywhere from or excuse me, that dies from injury, there's anywhere from twenty to one hundred more kids who are hospitalized somewhere mm -hmm. in this country uh, with an injury. And as you know. Um, the long-term outcome of those, those injuries yeah. can be devastating. It's costly, it's debilitating, it is a, a huge to uh, toll on the, um, the productivity and really just the well-being of kids and families. Right. Um, so so if, you, if you look at those, um, uh, well, if it's step back, if you look at what, which, what sort of traumatic brain injuries and what causes those injuries in, that lead to death in children, it's mostly um, injuries involving motor vehicles. But if you take one step back and say, who's in the hospital? Yeah, there are a lot of kids in the hospital with, with traumatic brain injuries caused by motor vehicle crashes. Uh, but there are just as many, if not more, uh, in the hospital with, with brain injuries caused by falls. And, um, you know, falls is a catch-all term, but it, it includes uh, window falls, as we talked about, kids falling out of windows off of uh, balconies, falling down stairs, falling on the playground, right. falling, just, you know, just falling. Right. Uh, <laughs> so uh, um, that is probably this the the group of of injuries and injury mechanisms that I would focus on if I wanted to to really uh, reduce the risks to uh, the younger kids or four mm -hmm. years old because there are just so many kids hospitalized now with falls. It is uh, it is a very heterogeneous group though, right? As yeah. I said, there's you know there's not one solution 
we can't abolish gravity. Uh, we don't recommend uh, that kids wear a helmet uh, 24-7. 24-7, right. You can't, you can't bubble wrap your children. And so you have to think about each of those injury mechanisms uh, on their own. And so um, if you want to talk about some specifics, let's start with windows because yeah. we're, we're just at the tail end here in Seattle of our window fall season. It is, um, it is, as I said, very predictable that when the weather gets warm here in the Pacific Northwest and across really most of the temperate uh, climates in the United States, people open their windows for ventilation yeah. and kids start falling out. This isn't a problem that we see in some place like Phoenix, where uh, there's a lot of air conditioning and people keep their windows closed when it gets hot. And in some places like New York City or um, or Boston, they've taken action through legislation to make yeah. windows safer. Because you know, a kid that falls out of a window in Seattle, you probably fall out of the second or third story. It's bad, but it's not necessarily fatal. If you're in New York, the housing stock is much higher and kids don't fall out of 20 story windows and survive. So that that is a problem that doesn't fly under the radar in New York. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would think it's a, you know, as you talked about environmental changes, construction, just point blank construction laws and rental housing unit laws that would support a preventive mechanism that are probably pretty low cost, but well, let's, I mean, let's, 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 sorry to talk over, let's, let's uh, construct that a little bit. I mean, so, so you really need to understand how kids fall out of windows. It's, I think in most circumstances, if you had a window that didn't have a screen on it, most parents would not leave that window open and then uh, walk out of the room with their toddler in front of an open window. Everybody sort of processes and, and recognizes like, well, that's a hazard. There's a big old hole in the window and junior could fall out two or three stories and get, get hurt. But when we put a bug screen on there, an insect screen on the window, suddenly that gives the, the illusion of safety, but it, those are not designed to keep no. kids from falling out. In fact, they're designed to easily pop out so that uh, you can use a window as an escape mechanism if your house is on fire. Right. Um, toddlers don't get that. Toddlers are curious. Uh, it takes seconds for a toddler to get up to a windowsill, either on furniture yeah. or just by climbing. Yeah. And uh, you know the weight of a, a toddler who's typically top heavy anyways, leaning on a screen is enough to pop the screen pop out. out. Well, so, you know, we, we do, as you say, said, every summer, try to get on TV and, and put out media that, that reminds parents that these things are dangerous. You know, kids keep, our screens keep bugs out. They don't keep kids in. Uh, keep an eye on your kids. Open the window from the top, not the bottom. Right. There are a yeah. lot of a lot of good preventive strategies we can recommend. Um, but if you really wanted to go down the road of you know, could you make products safer? Could you make windows safer? Um, that hasn't been much of an option uh, for the last thirty or forty years because there is no design standard for the window manufacturing uh, industry to to say this is what a safe screen looks like. This is how we know that that um, toddlers are gonna be safe in a house where these screens have been applied. That changed um, in 2009 after the state of Minnesota passed a law requiring um, uh, safety screens or safety treatments to windows um, in renovated or multifamily dwellings. And mm -hmm. um, so then suddenly it was uh, up to the ASTM uh, to to create a standard that would say, well, what does a, a safe window look like? And so now there is a description of how much force a, a screen would need to resist in order to be 
said, you know, called a safety screen and window manufacturers have started building these. So there is an option now to make windows as a product safer by installing or, you know, having them built and sent from the factory with safety screens in place that, you know, probably over many years as the housing stock uh, changes over and windows are replaced, we'll start to see a, a reduction in window falls. Well, that I'm interested on, I mean, your offices and my offices are a few blocks apart um, when we're in office. And of course, there's been a lot of construction near us of uh, redevelopment of low-income housing. And it is, while we at BIAWA haven't been as involved, you know, those are places where one, a community of education can occur. But yeah, as these new, new facilities and new housing projects have been built, I have no idea if there's been, I mean, I'm kind of oblivious to it. That's why I'm chatting with you. If any of these measures have been even in some capacity, you know, incorporated that all of the windows, because many of these do have young children. I mean, that's just, I, I yeah. work here every day. I see the kids. There's a lot of kids going into these uh, new housing complex is you know that they all open from the top down you know those those simple things that you know sometimes doesn't take a million dollars to make happen but if it does happen maybe you know those opportunities for a little bit of a safer environment i have i can say i have no idea i don't know if you've been in, if, if they've contacted you if there's been input yeah it's it's hard to say i mean an, an individual builder, developer, contractor could choose to install safety screens. And there's some well, these data. Are all, these are all government housing that I know of. So that's where, to me, it's like city of Seattle, King County in our area yeah, could we, be we, thoughtful about it. Well, I would welcome your advocacy in that regard. <laughs> we, are, we, we could use some allies there. I think, you know, where we've seen some success is just that where the government is responsible for housing. So uh, um, Evan English was a five-year-old child uh, who lived with his family in military housing in Hawaii and uh, tragically fell and died from his injuries um, a few years ago. His father, Jason English, has become um, a very vocal advocate for window safety in military housing and was able, uh, working with, with his senator, actually, to yeah. get uh, language into the Defense Authorization Act a few years ago requiring that military housing, which is typically run by contractors, mm -hmm. uh, that military housing be equipped with window uh, window safety devices and, and window safety screens. So, you know, that's that's where I think the, the rubber meets the road when the yeah. government, the payer is saying, you know, really, this is a standard that we're holding you to, like any other life safety standard in in the housing that we're building. Um, we want you to do this. And we're beginning to see some movement on that. It's always a matter of holding people's feet to the fire and making them- Yeah, yeah, but like you said, whether it's a sprinkler system or another, you know, that you can. And being an army brat, I love hearing that because yeah, that's another area where of course there are a lot of children and um, housing as it's being redeveloped. But if we look at, but if we, you know, the falls on the playgrounds, when you talk about these really young kids, I also think of, and this is going to come back to policy, and you're going to say, unless it's enforced, is daycares and other facilities. You know, we have schools where a lot of kids are, we have daycares where a lot of kids are. Kind of how in a prevention world has, has it 
been effective to have impact in those areas? I mean, I've seen playground equipment, just like you said, yeah. a lot better than it was before and things are thought about. And Yeah, I, playground safety is w one of those issues. Um, and to some extent, so is, it goes with like bicycling safety and, and pedestrian safety where there's a, a little bit of a tension. Like you, you want kids to be physically active. Um, you know, the, the biggest epidemic in uh, pediatrics. Absolutely. Care in my in my career has been pediatric obesity we want so we want kids to be physically active we want them to build activity into what they do and it's Absolutely. good for them both physically but mentally to be active and to explore and to have an environment and where it's safe to do that so you know it, there was a an early move i think when um people began to recognize the toll that playgrounds and the poorly designed playgrounds in particular right. had that it was okay we'll just remove the playground so your school won't have swing <laughs> or a climber or it's like great now there's you've the taken all away. or nothing right yeah. Uh, yeah and so that's the wrong approach I think there are a lot of things um, that people can do to make playgrounds safe Barbara Barlow is a trauma surgeon in New York City uh, she worked at Harlem Hospital there, and she had a, a campaign, the Injury-Free Coalition for Kids, whose signature intervention was going into communities and rehabilitating playgrounds, uh, mm -hmm. recognizing that play, playgrounds were a common uh, uh, location of, of injury for kids, but also that it wasn't that hard to rebuild them in such a way that they would be safe. Um, so, you know, we say, you know, take a look at playgrounds, make sure that the equipment in the area around the equipment is reasonable and don't let kids uh, get onto playground equipment that is not age appropriate. A lot of the injury that we see you know, uh, in, in any context is where kids are put into a situation that is beyond their developmental abilities. Mm -hmm. So they're being asked to do something like, you know, a six-year-old being asked to walk to school, they're not ready to navigate through a traffic environment safely. A 16-year-old put behind the wheel of a car, in many cases, is not ready uh, for that developmental task. And so, you know, you think about that mismatch with your own kids. What is is it reasonable for your four-year-old to be on equipment that was built for 12-year-olds? Um, so choose the equipment well, and then look at um, look at any elevated surfaces. You know, if there's a mm -hmm. the top of the slide or the top of the ladder, um, it should have it should be enclosed uh, with. Um, with a, a fence or a um, siding that that does not uh, let a kid slip through it, so three right, 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 and the playground surfacing, you know, it should be um, it should be material that is forgiving if a kid falls onto, right. onto it, right? Yeah, the old the old chopped up tires. You did say something, and I know you also Harborview here also is where our our local King County. Uh, Safe Kids Worldwide yep. kind of sits. And um, you talked about, you know, kids being able to walk to school. So say we environmentally made a nice couple, you know, it's all sidewalk and it's well lit and we got, you know, stoplights working and for as you get to the school, the monitors are there. But if a parent was, you know, it's my now my eight-year-old. So my six-year-old, I didn't let walk to school alone. But you said, you know, is it really just the behavioral is modeling, you know, walking with, how do you help that six-year-old to become an eight-year-old who can walk to school safely alone or with a friend? And, and just talking about 
this prevention aspect of, you know, falls and injury and pedestrians and cars yeah. and all of that. Yeah. So what's the um, best practice, Brian? Well, I mean, that's the, the it, that is a little controversial, perhaps. I mean, I would <laughs> say just in general, because, you know, we don't have a good a good marker for developmental maturity that would predict who's going to be good at navigating in a traffic environment. Well, age-wise, uh, right. Yeah, right. every so, child is different. Absolutely. So we would, as a pediatrician, I would say, and until your kid is 10 or older, I wouldn't let them walk to school alone. But really, in the run-up to that, there should be a period of walking with somebody who's talking them through through right. what's going on. You know, we, we, we do checkups with kids before they go into kindergarten. Uh -huh. And uh, I love to ask a five-year-old, uh, what do you do before you cross the street? And most five-year-olds know that the answer is, I look both ways. And their parents are so proud when they hear that. But then, then I ask, well, what are you looking for? And the answer is like, well, my friends or <laughs> money or... <laughs> There, there are lots of answers and it's, it's almost never like I'm looking to make sure that you're like a TV but, show, Brian, you get yeah. to hear how they say the strangest things. I'll they say do. the funniest things. So, so, I mean, I think parents are making an effort to teach kids yeah. about, you know, uh, traffic safety, but a lot of this doesn't stick and the kids can't generalize from, you know, the, the one, uh, the one street corner where they've been able to cross to, you know, what would it be like at this next street corner? What is it that is different here? So, um, so yes, kids need to learn that. And I think, as you said, one strategy for making the whole thing safer is to build in all the pedestrian amenities between your house and the school <laughs> so that kids don't have to walk, you know, on the side of the road um, they right. only cross when there's a controlled intersection, et cetera. One of the projects that we had um, in Seattle and that is still ongoing at many uh, local schools is a walking school bus, which uh, is, a, is a group of parents, usually as chaperones, that walk a pre-specified route every morning, uh -huh. and pick up kids as they go so that yeah. you don't, you know, you don't have to trust that your, your kid is going to um, be safe and appropriate walking to school by herself. But if she work, walks in a group with adult supervision, um, then she gets the benefits of walking. But uh, there's an adult there, hopefully making sure that they cross at the right time and in a safe manner. Uh, yeah. So we, you know, that's, that has encouraged more kids to walk to school. It turns out the kids who do this don't actually learn very much about pedestrian safety. They're too socializing <laughs> with their friends, uh, but it gets them to and from school. It gets them exercising. Well, well, you're kind of, I'm kind of, so I still haven't heard the, how it does work. I'm waiting for that piece. So it's, right. it's hard. I mean, the behavior change piece has always been a challenge and with kids, you know, my early work was in K-12 prevention education and to reduce risky behaviors and, you know, engage in protective factors and all of those things. And I haven't, you know, been as involved in that type of research for decades. And just, is there any overlay that really, you know, supports how to help them reduce risky behaviors and engage in the positive types of behaviors that, you know, end up being supportive of a, a healthy outcome. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it, there isn't, um, you know, um, a scientific breakthrough waiting to happen here. I think it is what <laughs> parents have done all along, which is know yeah. your kid uh, and try to expose them to situations in a way that is uh, progressively more challenging according to their abilities. And so, um, again, I'll, I'll use pedestrian safety as an example. There have been lots of people that have tried to do pedestrian safety curricula in schools, 
and kids uh, are pretty good about learning in a classroom environment what the right, right answer is. But then if you follow the kid home, uh, as they walk home, they none of those, those, those lessons generalize. So you really have to, as a parent, walk with your kid, talk right. about what you're doing. Um, right. and, and, you know, kids learn. They clearly, they it's do. a skill set that they're able to learn so that most yeah. of us can be safe pedestrians yeah. at some point. But um, you know, There's no magic fun. bullet in prevention of brain injuries yet, Brian. We're still working I, on it. No, not even that helmet thing. No, the hell. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, we get a couple of things you've mentioned that I'm going to say. BIAWA, we had a whole podcast actually with Stan Herring and, and one of our board members who um, ended his football career um, at the University of Washington due to a concussion. But we have we are and will always be pro-engage. You know, we want kids to be out there. Soccer, both of our sons played soccer together at a very young age. And, you know, and that was more when kids are really young. I mean, they're just running around, falling down left and right. And, you know, not a whole lot of rules of soccer being enforced, but just an opportunity to run and be engaged. And whatever they're doing is absolutely what we want to occur. And, I still believe in, in what you said does support, you know, in general, kids are safer now, you know, they're all overall everything that has been done and public health supports kids, you know, being more engaged. So we always want parents to not fear the engagement. It's like, do that. That's going to lead to so many other, other benefits for your child, including the health benefits, the mental health benefits. I think that's a, another piece, you know, as, as kids to make sure they're out and engaged and, and have opportunities to socialize with their friends. So we are pro doing that. Um, we just work to try and make it as safe as possible. That's, that's the goal of BIAWA is, is what can we do? But I really do want to hear more about your work in supporting these children through the rehab process. I'm not going to claim to be an expert on that. I just wanted to point out that that's part of this spectrum of injury control research. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the best best thing is to prevent the injury from ever happening. But right. if it does happen, uh, we want to make sure that we know uh, where and how to get kids the care that they need to maximize their opportunity to recover from this. So at Harborview, we've had a, uh, a uh, program called Pegasus, which really takes the best practices in, in brain injury care. So knowing what, what uh, kids or adults for that matter need in terms of protecting the injured brain, promoting healing in the injured brain. And uh, we've structured it and systematized it so that any kid with a significant brain injury is gonna end up on this pathway. If they're not, uh, there's a really good reason for them not to be on it. And we know what that is. But by and large, we're expecting on day one, this is what's gonna happen on day two, this will happen. Mm. And it's, uh, uh, you know, I'm gonna say this as a physician, it, is, it works well because it is driven by our nurses. Um, mm. And the nurses who are at the bedside all the time, they can look at the pathway and say like, this kid was supposed to have, you know, we're supposed to start feeding on this kid today. Why didn't right. that happen? Um, and, uh, so they'll, they'll keep us honest, uh, but that, you know, in and of itself, it, it uh, keeps us really on track in terms of the, the things that we know through research that are really important to, to give brains the, you know, the ability to heal, uh, to the maximum potential. The other thing that we've been doing, and it's, it's incorporated to some extent in this pathway is to get our colleagues from rehabilitation involved a lot sooner. So, mm -hmm. um, 
So rather than waiting until it's like, well, we're completely done with you at the hospital here, the next step is going to be rehabilitation. Uh, we're inviting the rehabilitation medicine uh, team, the therapist, the physician to come in, see the patient from very early on and get working on the therapies that we can do even while we're still helping the brain to heal from the acute mm -hmm. injury. Um, and there are some things, you know, there's some medications, for example, that we never used to think about that our rehab uh, colleagues are bringing into, into play much earlier in brain injury. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think it's it, what I've seen change over the last 20 years is this recognition that, no, that the, the continuum uh, of right. brain injury uh, care extends, you know, really, it's we're just at a, the, a tiny blip at the beginning of a person's journey with brain injury and the rehabilitation stretches often for years afterwards. Right. And, you know, and, you know, melds into the work that you do with community integration and yeah. building supports yeah. around people so they can live the best life they, they, that is possible given whatever's, um, whatever sequela they have from their injury. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just recognizing that and opening sort of the, the, the back door of the hospital to our rehab colleagues and say, come on in and help us now um, has been a, a real change in philosophy. So are there any other items like highlights that if, you know, you have a chance to chat to a thousand people plus who are going to listen to this podcast that you would want them to know about as as it relates to brain injuries or other areas that you want to make sure folks are thinking about knowing about and next steps of of what's important in the in the world of prevention yeah well i mean i i guess uh many of my my biggest take-home points you've already uh highlighted for us you know one is is that we should not be setting up uh, safety and brain injury prevention against uh, normal growth development and the physical oh, activity no. that, that needs to go with that. Like we, we, we want kids to have experiences to get out into the world uh, to test themselves in some yeah. way. Yeah, but, you know, it doesn't take much to make it a lot safer. Uh, the second is that historically, this is a safe time. I mean, it, we have much better access through, I think, you know, social media in our pockets to hear about every bad thing that happens. Yeah, <laughs> but the statistics actually say that this is a pretty good time to be a kid. Um, the kids are safer now than they've ever been. And so a lot of these changes, these investments that we make in the infrastructure and the products that surround our kids, they're paying off. Um, and then the last thing is, yeah, there there are, um, you know, I've got a, a long list of, of uh, potential injury mechanisms and safety strategies that we could talk about, but um, that would probably defeat the purpose of this topic because <laughs> you, you would have kids uh, squirreled away until they were 17. And <laughs> what I'd say is, you know, from a parenting perspective, right. Uh, it is. It is really just look at uh, look at what you're asking your kid to do, and is it appropriate from a developmental perspective? Because mm -hmm. there's always this mismatch between what a kid is trying to do or what we expect them to do, and what right. really they're capable of. Um, the beautiful thing about being a pediatrician is that things change. Kids grow, and what isn't possible for a kid today in a month or a year or you know, 10 years, depending on who they are, um, right. be able to do that. And as parents, we just have to be patient and let our kids uh, let us know what they're ready for. And I think without saying, it, you brought it up very earlier, it's not, it's not a number that is as predictive as, as who that child is and what they're capable for. But I, and I said this for many years with my own son, age was a very good thing 
for my son, right? You know, it was gave him time and time. I guess it was really time was a very good thing. And I think that's it, you know, it's not the number of the age. It's really where this child is at, what they've been capable of before, what they're interested in and, and let them guide and they really will lead. And then you as a parent can kind of be, you know, that omnipresent, but just, you know, making sure the safety pieces are there. But yeah, let's let's let kids still be kids. It's still really the a great time of life that we all, you know, want to look back on and and think of, you know, some of the most joyous opportunities we've ever had. Um, thank you for joining us today on Brain Injury Today and for all your work on behalf of all children and our little subsect of our brain injury survivors, our young brain injury survivors and their families, because it really is, you're as a pediatrician, really supporting the whole family. And I, I appreciate the time, Brian, as always. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Brain Injury Today. If you want to get in touch with our guests, you can find their information in the show notes for this episode. Be sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google, or Spotify, and share the podcast with your family and friends. As always, you can find support by calling 877-982-4292 or visiting biawa.org. Remember, you are not alone, and we'll see you next time on Brain Injury Today.